How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to episode eight of our Live from the Expo Floor podcast series. The future of critical care transportation, what's it all about? Well, we have an expert here to tell us. Kevin Colopy is the Clinical Outcomes and Compliance Manager for the Critical Care Transport at New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Hey, happy to be on today. Kev, critical care transport, so many shapes, so many forms, and it certainly doesn't often get the same attention that pre-hospital EMS gets, but it's so incredibly important in the mobile health care model. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about what critical care transport is? <laughs> That's a great question, and it really kind of depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, and, and real quickly, we'll see that there's a lack of standard definition anywhere in the country. So if you look at CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS defines specialty care transport as a billing level as transport that requires training and specialty care that goes beyond that of a traditional paramedic and they leave that to a local definition. So it depends on the locality. So in North Carolina, paramedics can do blood and blood draws. So that would be considered within their normal scope. In another state, they might not be allowed to touch it. So that requires a nurse. And so it's, it's really broken and broad. So, you know, that's the basic definition of any training that goes above and beyond traditional paramedic training. And I think the best way to look at it is your national standard curriculum. So if it's, if it's elevated above that, that's additional training doesn't mean paramedics can't have it or shouldn't have it. it means you need to get that afterwards as you get into critical care transport medicine uh, many other states have started to define a critical care paramedic license level or spe- certification level uh, we're in those stages now in north carolina south carolina has one i believe kentucky or tennessee wisconsin has one and i know there's others and i don't want to say oh some, you forgot them i, I just <laughs> I'm using a couple of examples, sure. but there's a there's several else out there, and I think it's important to get that because the states that don't have a critical care paramedic license level or credential level or rocker or whatever the heck they want to call it, when you don't have that, it becomes really vague and difficult to define the distinction between what is ALS and what is specialty or critical care, and they're really synonymous terms from a med legal definition. Uh, CAM is the accreditation on Uh, a commission on accreditation of medical transport services which is kind of the accrediting body for specialty and critical care transport programs both ground and air uh, throughout the world really they have they've been working to define several levels of critical care transport programs and kind of with elevating specialties and saying there's a difference between an air operator who does primarily scene work and a subspecialty team such as a peds only neonatal PICU transport team who's doing only peds or an ECMO transport team and so they're trying to break down those kind of definitions of those subspecialties but we're still struggling to kind of get that out there and get that mainstream so collectively right now today a lot of people are putting critical care transport on the side of the ambulance and unfortunately limited definitions and standards of training between those different services. It's interesting right because like you say it's it's confusing it's a bit of a hodgepodge and and in the same breath i can say point in fact 
in New Jersey, critical or specialty care transportation is run with nurses. There is no critical care paramedic. So, you know, it's very interesting. Like you say, how do you get to how do you get this to a place where it is? Listen, I don't know if we'll ever get standardized, but on the same level where we're we don't even have the same certification providing these services in a state. That's, that's right. And it's tough to get there. And I think we will get there and we're going to get there state by state. And what we are starting to see happen is a couple of those leaders that put those early definitions out there of this is a critical care paramedic. And what's even more important, this is a critical care paramedic scope of practice. Here's what they should be trained to do and you are expected to know. The new states that are coming on board are modeling the existing states. So we're slowly going to get that pushed across state by state and we really need to look at like the national ems advisory council and i'm going to plug them uh, because they just announced their new committee members today and there's a couple of great experienced critical care paramedics on there i believe that needs to be one of their agenda items is creating that definition defining it across the country and establishing that national definition and we really need to focus less on the transport but more on the medicine we really need to focus it more on critical care transport medicine and that you are not just moving a patient. It's not point A to point B. It's that clinical care and truly providing the ICU level care between the facilities. And and it's interesting that you say that because I do believe, I was just going to say what body, what governing body uh, or, you know, group of professionals will be able to see this through. And you just made mention of that group that you say specifically could potentially have the ability to push it through. I think that's what it's going to need. I think that if you do say, oh, okay, well, this state is doing it, and now this state is coming on board, and this state is coming on board, well, this is obviously best practice, right? right. So let's let's push this through so it becomes a standard approach. And you have two other associations that are really helping advocate for this. The International Association of Flight and Critical Care Paramedics, IFCCP. If you are interested, and this is not a shameless plug, I've got no bias to them, but if you're interested in critical care transport medicine, they're doing a lot of great work trying to create those standards, advocacy, push it out there. I I think you need to be a member. I'm a lifelong member of them. I'm a former president of the association, uh, so I am closely affiliated and believe in them, but I think they're doing great work to help push that out there. And one of their past presidents is now on that NEMSEC advisory board. Interesting. And then we can't, I don't want to downplay the value that ASNA, the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association, is in helping advocate for paramedics as well and saying we need that national standard. And so they're a great advocacy group that is supporting us step along, step by step along the way. So this is a pro, this is a work in, in progress. It really. is. This yeah. is you know I mean, let's be honest. It's been around for a very long time, critical care transport, but it's starting to come in its own into its own, where it's actually starting to form into something that is a little bit better and greater than we ever really gave it credit for. Yeah, I did. So I started really doing what truly is critical care transport medicine. By the seat of my pants back in 2005, I started working for a private ambulance service, and they're like, oh, yeah, and we have these ventilators here. Let me show you how the buttons work. Yep. And got no training with it, but then we're taking patients ER to ICUs. Probably got lucky I didn't kill anyone, I'll be honest, as I got more training and education. I went, oh, my goodness, you should not. That's really, I'm going to say dangerous to do. We need to create standards out there. And I think it's okay that anyone is offering critical care transport programs. This was... 16 years ago now, so I'm sure they're better. But if you're offering that and you are that paramedic, you need to get that training. You need to get that 
fundamental training that goes into it, whether it's in your orientation programs and it's formal classes where you go somewhere else to take the course, not just review course, but take formal training courses and get experience and advance and knowledge for the patients you're going to be taking care of. Well, let's stay on that slightly controversial topic then. And let's talk about needing that hospital backing or that infrastructure behind you because ultimately that is what can potentially dictate great outcomes. Now, it's not to say that there aren't privates out there that can do this and take this seriously and, and are data-driven and, and do all the right things. But there's also, and I hate to use the term, fly-by-night operations, no pun intended, that are doing this and we're not eliciting specific data and, and outcomes and there can be poor outcomes in certain situations. Yeah, and because it's so protocol specific and I think that's one of the dangers. And so, yeah, as I get into this, I'm a supporter of private ambulance services. I've worked for them. I've got friends who work and lead many of them and I think they do some great things, period. My personal belief, and I'll use my program as an example, is you elevate the level of care by integrating your offerings with a healthcare system. And so you can do that as a private service. I will speak to how we do that as a hospital-owned critical care transport system to be able to say we're providing ICU level care. Well, I mirror our 180, 200 protocols on the care that's happening in the ICU. So I go to the pediatric intensivists, I go to the adult intensivists, I go to the critical care pharmacists, I go to the stroke program, the STEMI program, the trauma team, the sepsis committee. Hey, we, this is our current protocol, your medicine's changing. What do we need to tweak so that we're providing your medicine so that as we arrive, you're simply continuing what we've started. We've initiated your bundle of care earlier and I'm not doing my own thing that is inconsistent with that receiving hospital. It's really easy for me to do that when I'm a hospital-based program taking most of my patients to a single hospital. It becomes a little more complicated if you are that service that goes to multiple health systems, but I think you can still do it and mirror that to a greater degree. So I think you need to be integrated is the key phrase, regardless of ownership, so that you ensure you are providing that because that's better for the patient. Earlier interventions, especially for key emergencies, it helps improve outcomes. We know that but your interventions have to be aligned with the next step along the chain. We, aren't, we, we are rarely providing definitive care. We are providing important, vital care, but we're not the end of this chain. It's a continuum of care. Exactly. And, and really what it is, is by aligning with that system, you're in lockstep, really, right? You're, you're resource rich because of the subspecialties that you can utilize in that respect. Whereas if you are independent, you don't necessarily have access to that. And right. I think that that's a really important point. One of the best examples of that is like my team has point of care labs on board. And we've had labs for several years. We're actually, we were the shameless plug of my system. If you anyone wants to come work, I'm hiring. Airlink <laughs> Vitalink was the first EMS system in the United States accredited by the College of American Pathologists as a laboratory. So we are our own independent accredited lab. We work very closely with the hospital lab to do that. Since then, many other programs have used the same device. We use Epoch, they're here today. I don't get paid to say their name. I'm just telling you what we use. I'm not saying they're better than anyone else. I really like them. Uh, there's lots of reasons for that. that. That's a different conversation of how can we use labs. But point here is I'm using the same system and the same bed of data and the same methodology as my hospital so that they can compare my lactate 
to lactates in, as they trend over time in the hospital. My ABG to their ABG. We had to get, so we were systemized together so you compare dat, data to data. Lots of people have point of care, just, you know, uh, moderate comp, or moderate, sorry, wow, CLIA waived point of care lactate. But we can't compare that under lab rules to the hospital. So yes, you got data, but it's apples to oranges. I can't trend that over time. And I've heard other programs say, well, we can't afford to get lab devices. You're lucky you've got the hospital. I am. That's why I think it's so important to be integrated and to align with them so you can provide that continuum of care between facilities and they can continue what you've started. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think that equipment equipment's really important and that integration is vital. Well, it's definitely it, it's definitely impressive, uh, number one, the fact that, that you have that in place. And it, certainly you should shamelessly plug that. Um, talk to me a little bit about the therapies involved in critical care transport and how they vary and, and where, you know, where we're going with that as we start to move down the line. So, great question, and it really depends on the disease we're taking care of. And let's be real, across the United States, there are tons of patients moved. And what's really undervalued, and that's been shown in the literature, is if you and I have the same disease, say we're both having a heart attack, you went to the hospital with a cath lab and I had to be transferred. My outcomes are more likely to be worse. If we're both admitted for, admitted for sepsis, you were in the ER, I had to be transferred. My outcomes are going to be worse. Every disease, when you line up the patient's criticality, they are worse if they require transport. So what happens in transport really matters. So you have to be providing medicine. It is not okay to say, well, it's just IVO to monitor. We're just moving the patient. You really have to think about the care you're providing. Initiating for PEDS patients, the same maintenance fluids that they're going to have in the hospital. If the hospital is going to have maintenance fluids with potassium, you have maintenance fluids with potassium. So we're initiating that care earlier. If you're transporting a patient in septic shock, you're using the same antibiotics as the receiving hospital. So we're aligning those therapies together. It's all about that medicine that's being provided. And we, we don't say, oh, it's good enough. They can take care of it later. Yeah, their potassium's low. Someone else can get it. No, we, we, are, we start managing that disease process, even if we're not going to fix it. And you have to go line by line through the protocols to say, yes, there's medicine we're providing. And I think it's important to say sometimes less is more. You don't have to do it all, but you want to make sure you are Along, along that process. You know, it, it's interesting because, yes, there has to be medicine. It's critical care transport. It doesn't get that label for nothing, right? right. There, there's a, there's an, a very strong element of medicine within that. But let me tell you one of the issues that I see, uh, you know, from my region is the lack of resources, right? We have hospitals regularly looking for critical care transport and there are no units available. And I wonder if this lends itself to this lack of standardization. And I, I don't know. I don't know how it gets fixed, uh, but I just know that that's what we see, you know, in the Northeast a lot. So I think there's. I think that's a great observation, and there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, yes, there. It's easy to say we have a lack of appropriate critical care transport resources, but the problem is actually upstream of that. We have a lack of appropriate ambulance resources. We have a lot, lack of appropriate BLS and ALS ambulances. Not every patient being transported needs a critical care ambulance. But if that's the only ambulance I have available, I'm going to have to use them to move a patient. And then when my critical patient comes in, they now have to wait. They have to wait longer. So I don't have enough BLS ambulances, ALS ambulances. That's across the United States. The other piece that we're seeing because of that perception we don't have enough is 
And this is a turnover problem across pre-hospital care in general and mobile integrated health in general is my talent pool because so many people are hiring, so many people are putting fixed wings and helicopters and critical care ambulances that you used to have to have five, eight, 10 years of experience to even get an interview. Now it's, do you have three years of experience in a card in a lot of places and you're getting interviewed or two years and uh, that's pretty good experience. By the time our accreditation partners come in, that you'll have three years, so you'll be okay. And I see this getting corner, getting cut, corner, getting cut in a lot of places. And so your experience and your pool of candidates is really getting diluted. And without getting into pay equity, it pays a real problem that causes burnout. Mental health causes the burnout. That the problem that shortage that you're describing of I get into critical care transport medicine and now I'm doing discharges because that's what the health system needs or I'm doing IVO2 monitor transports between the hospitals because those are the patients ready that contributes to burnout if I'm doing all this training for the 10% of my patients I'm not using my skills to the best of my ability every day the best way to keep team members is to maximize their talent as much as possible and if we're not doing that we're going to have turnover and burnout. And I think that's why you're seeing so many paramedics move across the country to different jobs, hoping it's a little bit better. And I, I'd go even further than that and say that I think, uh, to your point, I think this is a system wide problem as far as resource and personnel. But I also think, you know, quite candidly, I think it's going to get worse because of COVID. I think it that is. there's a lot of providers that have just had it, it emotionally and physically. They're done. They're done. I have never seen openings like I have post in the post-COVID world mm -hmm. th than what we have right now. So you had people leave. A lot of places had hiring freezes for a while, and now we're busier than pre-COVID. It's like there, there's a there's a cascade effect, and for critical care transport, it's going to be a real problem because our patients are getting sicker. They're waiting longer to engage in hospital systems, so they're becoming more complicated. They're later in disease state, and so our dem our our need is going up. So. Instead of just catching up on the open positions I had, I've got those, and I'm I, and I'm not. I'm saying this is a general mm -hmm. critical care transport, not specifically my program, but then we have the growth we need on top of it. So we've got accelerated growth need plus existing openings, and now increased departures. So you're right. So it's the perfect cascade, and we're seeing that all over EMS, and it is going to get worse for a while. And I don't have the magic answer to fix that one. I, I don't, I don't think, time. yeah, I'm not sure anybody does. I just know that everybody realizes that it exists and it's going to probably get worse. Now, uh, compounded with on that is that when we talk about critical care transport, subspecialty teams play a, a real role in this. And now yes. we're already short personnel, but we're looking for folks to be specific to subspecialties in the critical care transport world, which makes it even harder. Correct. So you've got people who get experience, when we talk about subspecialty teams, we're talking about pediatric neonatal ICU teams, ECMO teams, balloon pump transport teams, there's heart failure teams, stroke teams, there's all these new kind of specialty teams coming out. And it's really easy to say, well, can't you generalize them all? And if you're, if you're doing all of them a little bit, you're only going to be okay. Right. If you really want to be good, you specialize. And, and there's a lot of evidence in the literature to support that, that specialty teams improve outcomes for those niche areas. That's why we have them. They're important. But you need to get the education and the experience to be able to go into those teams. And it's really easy to say, well, we should put paramedics and train them to do that. That's a great idea. Let's define the standard of that education. We don't have that yet, which is why many of those teams don't have paramedics. They have nurses, advanced practice providers, physician specialists going with them. But I think there is still a role 
beyond operating the vehicle for a paramedic or a critical care paramedic on a lot of those teams. But they're seeing the same thing. They have the same burnout. And we're only, we are going to see their needs grow as well as we subspecialize more. Well, I'll tell you what, I probably have about 30 more questions, but we do not have the time, unfortunately. But I will say that, Kevin, this has been really insightful, and I want to thank you for coming on. And ultimately, sure, there's going to be challenges with critical care transport. There's going to be challenges with, you know, mobile integrated healthcare in general. But I do see it going in the right direction. I, you know, folks like yourself, um, who really champion this cause and take this so seriously, you're quite the asset to the industry. And I really want to say, you got to keep pushing it through. You got to keep it doing it. It takes a team. We're just, I'm one person on a ton of people working on and that, things and, like this. And we need it because like I said, there are things going on in other states that really require special attention. And this is certainly one of them. But Kevin Colopy, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, appreciate it. And thank you for listening to episode eight live from the expo floor. Stay tuned as we're rolling out 13 episodes during this series. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Thanks for tuning in. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 